She returned to the capital, where she was watched by her fiancé's spies, but not closely. She was the shadow princess, dull and quiet. She waited with every appearance of passivity as a funeral was arranged for her father and a wedding for herself. Then, at the wedding feast, while the lords and ladies of her court looked on, Atolia poisoned her bridegroom. Here comes the bride with cyanide. <laughs> Coincidentally, Cyanide Bride is also the name of an emo band I was in in 2006. Welcome back, Atolians, Edesians, Sunesians, members of the Mead government. Stop listening immediately. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief. It's May 5th, 2019. Our chapter up for discussion this week is chapter 12 of The Queen of Atolia, and it's a pretty unusual one in that it's mostly flashback. In this chapter, we learn a little bit about why Irene is capital L, capital T, like that. Jen only gets a brief mention to reassure us that he's still plenty bread. So, what do you think? Is Irene a tragic figure, or is it cool motive still murder? Aren't those both bad things? <laughs> Where's the good option, Noel? <laughs> there, there are no good options with Atolia Irene. It's either very sad or uh, evil. That's what you have. <laughs> You're either the villain or... Uh, you live long enough to see yourself become an even worse villain. <laughs> you know what? I was going to say you're either the villain or the victim. Which is, there's a lot to unpack mm, there. Because yeah. she, she, she starts off this, this whole flashback, which is kind of her history, yeah. in the position of a victim. Mm-hmm. And she gets herself out of that, but only by doing things that we would consider to be immoral. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, what do you think you would have done? in this scenario oh my god i would have totally gotten married and been a shadow queen forever i am (laughs) i could never reach that level of badassery that oh it's swearing Mm. it's mild whatever i could never people get shot in this chapter (laughs) can handle a few curse words i feel like you know i would love to take control of my own government but i think i'm too like meek a person and it's taking control of her own mm, life, too. Yeah. Because it's such an extreme... Like, even if her husband-to-be hadn't had all of these plans to uh, be a, a tyrant... Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay, he, I guess maybe I could have done something in that situation. That notwithstanding, he's, mm-hmm. he's dull, he's mean, yeah. and uh, she was... F- Facing down the oncoming headlights of that life. And what do you, what do you do? Yeah. And it's not like, I mean, it's not like there are too many quieter options available. Yeah. Like, she could have maybe gotten married and then worked subtly against him, but probably not. There's an you know? you. Like, yeah. Someone could write that. It would be And then teams up with Jen ten years later, take him down. (laughs) And because she's Irene, she sits 
and she waits and she mm-hmm. takes stock of the resources at her disposal, which is yeah. not a lot. And figures out how to use what she has. I thought it was really interesting that it was the royal jewelry. Yeah. Which is this feminine thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ornamental, but she recognizes that these things have a real value in this world where everything is about property and everything is about money. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that create power. And so she has power because she has wealth and she's able to leverage that mm-hmm. in a way that was not expected. Yeah. What would you have done? Oh, man. I think that I might have I might have had the presence of mind to kill him, <laughs> but I would not have thought ahead enough to buy the loyalty of the army. Yeah. Which is that's why that's she succeeds. That's why she succeeded, yeah. Cuz there are all these different moving parts to the government of Atulia and they're all working against each other and she needs the right people Mm -hmm. on her side even though she still doesn't trust them but she trusts that they're greedy enough to do what she says yeah she had already figured out in all that dead waiting time how to move against witch barons and what she needs to do to go against her Mm father-in-law and when she defeats a baron she divides his property among his competitors Mm -hmm. so Property, Which property, property. Reinforces the idea that, you know, they have to, like, the only option for them is either you're loyal to her or you get destroyed. Mm-hmm. And if you're loyal to her, you benefit. Yeah. And I think the placement of this flashback chapter is really effective mm-hmm. because if it had been any earlier in the book, well, I guess by earlier I mean if it had been, you know, pre hand getting cut off, things would have been very different, you know? Mm hmm. Do you think it would have made your perception of her more positive or more negative? Um, that's a good question. I guess maybe it would have made it more positive, actually. Mm-hmm. I feel like it might have made my perception of her more negative. Really? But I, I can't really put my finger on why. Because then it would feel as if uh, her cutting off Jen's hand was like the culmination of just this snowball effect. Yeah. As opposed to something that is and at the beginning of the book she seems like she's a rock Mm -hmm. and she's uh you know she's not coming from a place of feeling and you don't necessarily think of her as somebody who was ever a child yeah uh or you know of a lonely teenager Mm -hmm. and it certainly makes her much sadder yeah but i think it's um it works for the story that up until now you get her enemies, the outsiders' perspective on her, and then you get the mm-hmm. the inner perspective as the story moves into its, I guess, more romantic half. That now we're supposed to start seeing her as a person, yeah. as Jen does. As we enter the final phase. Yeah. <laughs> I like that this flashback comes right on the heels of go and steal the Queen of Atolia. So we yeah. know now that they're going to go after her Mm -hmm. and if it's your first time reading it you don't know what they're going to do with her they might be trying to hurt her uh and so we are maybe on board with that because she's the villain at that point we're like yeah "Yeah, go get her and then we see her yeah and it gets a little bit more ambiguous yeah a question that i wanted to ask is what is the role of mothers in this chapter and in this book 
and maybe even in the series as a whole, because there aren't a lot of moms anywhere. It's very mm -hmm. fairy tale like. There are just nobody yeah. has a mom. And uh, Jen's mom was beloved, but she's dead. Helen has no parents. Uh, Sophos doesn't have a mom. Yeah, he does. He does he? Yeah. She's like a big part. Oh, kind of. you're right, you're right, 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 right. You think you must be thinking of someone else. I'm thinking of um Who's that other Costas's mom is yeah, dead. Yeah. Probably. We don't get maybe. She's never mentioned but his father is whatever. But Irene also her mother clearly died when she was very young. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in this chapter when she goes to try and find a nurse that she remembers from her childhood to come and be her attendant. Mm -hmm. um, but this nurse now has children of her own, and she says that there's no way that you could have your nurse back, and there's no way that you could trust me because people could use my family to blackmail me. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like Irene trying one last time to, to, to reach out for a mother, like some sort of... yeah. And that, in light of the one myth that we have in this book, which is so focused on mothers and daughters, right? it made me wonder about why we have those two little stories and if they're connected. Well, Sophos being we... the only one with a mom probably explains a lot about Sophos. Yeah. <laughs> he's, that's why he's doing so much better emotionally. That's what I was going to say, is that this makes me think that, you know, in this flashback particularly, we see that she's completely isolated and this is why she grows up ruthless and cold and stone-faced. And I think a lack of a mother or nurse or grandmother, a woman who loves her, is maybe meant to be seen as a cause of that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack mm -hmm. of a line of trust and connection between women. Right. Like, not necessarily a mother, but just any older woman mm -hmm. even the younger woman in um this flashback or her adversaries when she's in the home of her fiance for the year before um the marriage it says that the other ladies beside her in the corner cast her eyes down demurely and flaunted for her benefit the the jewelry that her fiance left with them after, after his, his visits vis his visits <laughs> Yeah. Which we were talking last time, I think, about extramarital sex. Right. And uh, whether people are having it, and these people are I guess. having it. Yeah. So... <laughs> and also her um her father had... Uh, concubines. Concubines. So Which is an interesting just, word choice. Yeah, it's not one mistress. Right. And also concubine, that word implies, uh, like, slave woman. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what it means? Instead of just... There's mistress. also... There is a... A mention yeah. specifically of... Hold on. Let me flip through the book. Oh, I'm way too far ahead. Aha. Um, the barons had looked Atolia over, she remembered, the way she had seen men looking at slave girls. That's page 203 of the new edition. And so there, um, we, we know from the next couple of books that there is slavery in all regions mm -hmm. that we have action in in these books but there's specifically uh, a sexual element yeah which is sort of not discussed again in depth ever i want to say yeah it's just it's just in these Even in small it's just in these small passages mm -hmm. where you have to infer it it's yeah. never stated out loud and atolia is an object of the same misogyny that creates that, but she has access to money. Mm -hmm. 
and that's why she's able to defend herself. Something else I wanted to bring up about ruling was her father died six months before the wedding, and her fiance told me he had told me God. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I was there, guys. Um, and his fiance, God, his fiance, another one. Here we are. Well, All right. put an E on the end. It could be feminine. Yeah. Anyway. What am I trying to say? Uh, Atolia's fiancé told her that her father had been poisoned or murdered by some unknown assailant. At that point, she it says that she hadn't cried, and she had determined that no tears were necessary, because hadn't he gotten what he'd bargained for? Hadn't he reached the end of his reign without war? And I just wanted to bring up that perspective... Because it's kind of a... I don't know if it could be... Do you think it can be considered as a foil to her approach to ruling and war? Because we see that he bargained away Atolia, Mm -hmm. I guess both the country and the woman, in exchange for no war at the end of his reign. And then he died of that early. But she ruling now... Like, she must have seen this, how he thought of ruling. And And she... um, she you mean this she embraces war and violence? Yes. Uh, because or that was a... She knows... She sees what that cost him. Yeah. And determines to use war in a different way. Or to not, you know, shy away from it, I guess. Out of some sort of... She also creates... I don't know. She creates a, a situation where she will never, as far as she plans be in a position where she has to make a decision about sacrificing somebody that she cares about because she doesn't care about anything uh, yeah. or anyone. Also, in this chapter, though, I kind of see that lack of trust and that lack of family and friends as something that's more imposed on her mm-hmm. than, a, than a deliberate choice. It says in there... Um, now it's my turn to <laughs> fumble <laughs> through the pages... Also, a, a fresine or fresine, that's another example of yeah. uh, someone who's this, like, potentially uh, maternal connection that she has, but there's, like, always a wall between them. Yeah. It says, surrounded by people who hated or feared her, she trusted no one and told herself that she didn't need to. Mm. And then that's when she tried to get her old nurse back. Yeah, so she, she wanted someone she could trust, but then she learned from that experience that there was no chance. Yeah. And then only after she realized it wasn't an option, then she put in the emotional defense mechanism of, oh, I don't need or want it either. Yeah. Which is why, I mean, Eugenides is so uh, foreign to her because Mm -hmm. he's so driven by this deeply emotional loyalty. Yeah. And she she sees what he does because of it, but she doesn't understand it. Yeah. She banks on people being driven by greed, and he, even though he is a thief, is uh, never driven by the greed for material mm-hmm. wealth. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't want things. I mean, he steals stuff, and then he dedicates them to his god, and he steals the stone, and then he yeah. gives it to Helen, who throws it in the volcano. <laughs> but he never steals something just to steal it. He always yeah. has some sort of secondary actual. So his motivation is is loyalty and duty and also the ambition for, like, an abstract glory. And sometimes just annoying the hell out of other people. Yeah, and she can't control that. Yeah. There's no... There's there's not a uh, an easy... It's not easily manipula- manipulatable. Yeah. Is that how you say that? 
Anemone. You can't manipulate him easily. Here we go. Another question that I had related to that is, uh, what did Jen intend to accomplish with the ruby earrings if he intended to accomplish anything at all? Like, what's the thought process? What message did he think he was sending? Was he just like, oh, she's going to love this? <laughs> like, I really, I'm, like, obviously, he does, he wants to give her a gift. Yeah. But he has to know that she's going to interpret it. Interpreted it. We're having problems with syllables today. He has to know that she's going to interpret it as, at best, a joke. On her. Yeah. And at worst, a threat mm-hmm. of, I can stand right next to you while you're sleeping and you won't wake up and I could kill you just as easily. I kind of thought later when he says, like, he's just searching for something to say to stop her from climbing up the stairs so fast he says oh i thought you might like the earrings his mention of it right there made me think at the time like oh he really is just naive enough to have it just be a gift that he's not thinking about the implications but that doesn't make any sense i think you're right that he has to he has to have known you know i think maybe it's another example of him inviting danger yeah he just likes risks he likes risks and he specifically like he wants to do something that will make her react to him. Yeah. He wants her to pay attention to him. It's it's yeah. like a... He's, Even if he's she doesn't... Like a te- well, he is a teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants he wants her to look at him in the cafeteria. What's that Love Me, Hate Me song? Is that <laughs> Panic at the Disco? What is that? You know? <laughs> that as long as, as long as you're thinking about me. Yeah. I don't care which one it is. Well, the uh, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Yeah. That's what they say. That's a very eugenides attitude. Yeah. <laughs> then we also have another scene with Kamet and Huzrish in this chapter. This includes another example of you have to you have to read between the lines to come closer to the reality of what slavery is in these books. Mm-hmm. Is um Nehuzerish says, I've noticed in you a distressing tendency to err in your pronouns of late. And it says, the secretary dropped his eyes and held very still, which you have to assume. He he doesn't know if he's going to get hit. And then dared a self-effacing smile. And I had to Google Google that, but self-effacing is apparently not claiming attention for oneself, retiring and modest. And it's literally erasing yourself pretty much. And Nehusharesh, he's able to laugh this off because he assumes that Kamen is doing this because he's love-struck by Tolia and he thinks he's so beautiful. And Kamet agrees with this and is like, oh yeah, of course, that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, it says, The secretary shrugged, too wise to say that he sympathized with the barbarian queen as her choices grew fewer and her freedom slipped away. And so Kamet, even though... He tells himself that he doesn't want freedom, he doesn't need freedom. He sympathizes with people he sees who are having their freedom taken away. Yeah. And so he he feels for her what he's not able to feel for himself. Yeah. Just like how Atolia was saying, like, oh, I don't need friends or trusted people as a defense mechanism because she can't have those. I think Kamet's doing the same thing. Like, he's already tried to escape and it failed. And now he says, I don't need freedom. I love my life how it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, in this world, it's it's very brave to admit that you want something. Yeah. Which maybe is 
bravest thing about Jen at the end of the day is that he knows what he wants and he's willing to admit that and be vulnerable in that and also sacrifice things to get it. That's chapter 12. Next week, it's go time! Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be Be blessed blessed in in your your endeavors. endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, find us on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. For the record, I did Google Cyanide Bride to see if there was actually a band called that, and apparently there was at one point because I found a link to a Facebook page, but it's been deleted. So... R.I.P. The band Cyanide Bride. <laughs> <laughs>